For what do I have if I don't have you, Jesus? What in this life could mean anymore? You are my rock. You are my glory. Welcome to The Rock Podcast. After an entire chapter filled with heroes of the faith, it's time for a pastoral exhortation. The Old Testament believers, by faith, ran their leg of the race, passing the baton, as it were, to us. Now it's our turn to run our race for God's glory. Let's join Pastor Ross now with a message entitled, The Cloud of Witnesses. Well, I've been mulling around the idea of picking up uh, running again as a hobby. And uh, mulling around, just so you know, is a lot easier than actually running (laughs) around. (laughs) So I haven't taken that step yet. But I ran across some interesting facts about marathons that I thought I'd share with you. The whole idea, supposedly, is probably, most of you know, originating there in Greece. And uh, they uh, defeated the Persians in 490 BC, and some soldier ran with the good news, and it was about 25 miles. So every year, they commemorated that good event with running 25 miles. Uh, miles. Now, the first modern times uh, Olympic marathon was in 1896. There were only 17 people who wanted to run 24.8 miles, and that's what it was at the beginning. Uh, now, it is 26.2 miles, but what's up with that arbitrary number? Nobody knows why, by the way. What's up with the point two? I think the point two is just to torture the runners. You know, it's not enough that you get 26 miles. It's a point two, whatever, you know. And, and you know, the largest uh, marathon in the world, I guess, is New York City. There's about 50,000 runners there. You can run marathon races in many exotic places. You can run one in China, which incorporates 5,169 steps on the Great Wall. So looking forward to that, I'm sure. Uh, There's one in the North Pole and in Antarctica so that you can run with the penguins at 40 below. Not going to happen. There's one in Hawaii where you get to run around volcanoes. And don't forget the one at Walt Disney World in Florida where you get to run around all the theme parks there with Minnie and Mickey rooting you on. I'd rather be in the volcanoes. (laughs) Here's some disheartening news, all right? This really threw me. The average runner burns 2,600 calories. When I read it, I said, that's a typo. They're missing a zero. You gotta have 26,000 calories, maybe, but no, it's only 2,600 calories. Are you kidding me? If I ran a marathon, I want free pasta for a month. (laughs) I want free desserts for a year. Do you know what that comes out to? Two slices of Costco pepperoni pizza and a large Coke. That's not working. (laughs) Well, a couple more, a couple more. We're just having fun here. 
Uh, the fastest time, of course, was a Kenyan. Uh, they just can hold their breath, apparently, forever. Uh, ran the, the Boston Marathon in two hours, three minutes, and two seconds. That's a five-minute mile. Five-minute mile for 26.2 miles. Wow. Well, the world record, and here's my last one. The world record for the slowest. <laughs> Lloyd Scott, who wore a 110-pound diving suit to slow him down, and it worked. <laughs> Five days and eight hours. Now, why would somebody want to do that, right? Well, it was a charity event. So that explains it because really no one, and catch this, this is a transition, no one running a race would deliberately weigh themselves down and hinder their speed and sabotage their chances of finishing well. Nobody would actually do that on purpose if they were serious about running a race, right? Well, our writer to the Hebrews after all of these exhortations showing us these lives of faith in the Old Testament where ordinary people were running their race by faith through all kinds of obstacles, they, they, they finished the course and they, they kept the faith, uh, but they ran streamlined, straight and narrow. They lightened the load and faith was the cause of that. And so he wants us to imitate uh, those lives that he has just kind of paraded before uh, our eyes. And so let's begin with Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. Here we go. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning at shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And so, that is going to be our text for this morning, Communion Sunday. It's perfect for remembering the Lord's death on our behalf. And so uh, there's a lot in this paragraph. We're going to walk through it. You know, so he's saying he's going to use the metaphor of running a race. You know, the Bible does that a lot. Kind of helps us understand different aspects of who we are, what we're supposed to be doing when he calls us hardworking farmers who are sowing and reaping or builders who are going about following God's plan and constructing a life of faith. Uh, when he talks about um, fighting and soldiers, but now here clearly in a popular metaphor for the Christian life is running a race, not a sprint, but a long distance, kind of a marathon, obstacle course kind of running from the moment that we become born again. And so uh, he, he's pictured really the Old Testament people of God running their leg of the race in Hebrews 11. And then Jesus appears and, and, 
And they pass the baton to the New Testament church and they say, we are one family. We're the Old Testament runners and we're in the race with you and we're handing this off. It's just a, a beautiful metaphor. And so that the whole point is, is that through faith, that we would have the endurance to run the race and do well to finish well and win the prize, right? And so he says, that's gonna happen Three thoughts in this paragraph. I just kind of condensed them down to three things, easy to remember. Uh, one, the stadium. Two, the strategy. And three, the savior. So we're going to take a look at that. Now, before we get to the stadium, great analogy, the race, right? But uh, we need to make sure we have good theology about the race. What This race that we're running... It does end up in heaven, but we're not running to obtain or secure a place in heaven. That's not the point. Uh, theology, good sound theology, tells us that that race was already run and won on our behalf. Jesus Christ did what we were powerless to do. We could never measure up. We couldn't be good enough. That's why we have a savior who died on the cross for us. And so what is evaluated, the moment that you become born again Christian, boom, star's pistol does go off regarding quality of life, how you cooperate with the Holy Spirit and the new life he's called you to, how you make the most of your opportunities, your resources, your prayers, your efforts, knowing you, not, not compared to me or to, to, to anybody else. It, you're competing against your own potentiality. God has a plan for your life. And the closer you come through cooperating with his spirit, through obedience and proper faithful stewardship, you hit that bullseye. That's winning. You're running against yourself, not to mention the world, your own sinful nature, and, and the evil one. So there's a, there's a contest. Of course, it didn't start until you came to life. Nothing's going to be evaluated when you were dead in your sins because you weren't alive. But when new life comes into you, uh, he's going to evaluate. You're running, right? And so this is the point, that you run well. And so the first one is the stadium. Wow. He says... Think, think of the crowds and the stands that have gone before. So as I said, he, he's pictured all, you know, Moses and Noah and Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and all those wonderful lives that we've been looking to and studying. He pictures them with the T-shirt and the sweat and the baton and running and running to, to make a foundation for, for Christianity to be able to blossom, for a savior to come through a messianic nation. They're all working and sweating and struggling, being persecuted and running and running, and they reach and they give it to us. And now the author is saying they hand it to us, they finish the line, cross the finish line, and they take their seat in the stadium and watch with concern rooting and cheering in their vested interest. This, this is part of their, they were team A. And now it wasn't done, Messiah wasn't here yet, the church wasn't born, and they're like, go for it. And they hand it off to you and to me. 
So there are people who, who have vested interest. They, they bled and died, some of them, right? And so there is this picture here. Think of who may be watching this whole thing unfold. Think about the team effort, what you might owe them and the obligation to them, uh, the men and women who lived and died to bring the gospel. And so it's a great metaphor and, and one that they're, he's going to tell us uh, how to do well at finishing well, because that's really the point. You know what? <laughs> Don't tell me the dramatic way you started the race. Oh, you should have seen me coming out of the box, man. Like nobody's business. Don't tell me about the sizzle when it first hits the pan, you know? Don't tell me about, oh, the pace. I ran a five-minute mile and then I didn't finish it, right? It's about finishing well, and he's going to say uh, three ideas here that are going to help. Now, uh, really, heaven's interested. Heaven is engaged. They're watching and rooting if we are going to take this implication as what it is. It's a fact of life. We are creatures of uh, motivation. We need to be motivated to do what we do. And when we're doing it, we need encouragement to carry it through. That's how we are. And I don't care if you're an athlete, a performer, uh, an actor, uh, a speaker, a politician, when when there's a valued and treasured emotional tie to an audience member who's watching, it can bring out the best in you. It can bring stuff out of you that you didn't even know was, was in there. A mom and a dad at a sporting game of yours, that's a big deal, you know? And you catch their face. You know, that, that's a good thing. I, you know, a, a, a spouse sitting in a full-on thing, and you're doing your thing, and you're doing your thing well, and that's, that spouse is quietly smiling in admiration. Get out of the way. Things are going to happen, right? Especially if you're a guy. <laughs> that's a real, that's a thing, you know? I'll never forget it. It wasn't in my notes, but uh, the pastor, when I first got saved, I had been saved about eight months, and I've been preaching on street corners and preaching to uh, uh, everywhere. <laughs> and, and, and the pastor got wind that I was a preacher speaker kind of guy. And, and I, I mentioned to him, hey, anytime, you know, I could share like a devotional or something, you know, and he gave me a Sunday, a full on Sunday, the whole Sunday, right? And my parents came. And, and my, my, my dad and my mom, and I'll never forget seeing them and their faces and just, you know, just, oh, right? That's what he, the Holy Spirit knows us. He knows how to pull it out of us. And he's not just saying, let's pretend. I, I don't believe that. I, he could have used the word crowd. There's a crowd or a whole list of people or a whole group. Why does he use the word nephos, Greek cloud? The Holy Spirit knows Greek very well. <laughs> Why does he use the word cloud to get us to look up? Oh, that's where they're watching from. Come on, you know. And so it's easily inspired. It's, it's, it's easy to get inspired when some, we know somebody's cheering us on. Well, who are they? 
Well, you know, as we've been saying, they're all the heroes of old. These people that we could totally relate to because they were flawed. They didn't have it all together, but they had a pinch of faith. And with that little faith, they did great and awesome things. God worked in them and through them. You know, they, uh, these are those who are in the stands, in the, the metaphor. Uh, they survived unharmed through an entire world of being flooded and judged. They, by faith, came through that, holding a door open to any who wanted to escape God's wrath. Those are them. that They opposed Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Uh, they traded the pleasures of the world to suffer disgrace for Christ. They walked through the fire. They shut the uh, mouths of lions. They escaped execution attempts. By that same faith, they were forced into poverty. They were imprisoned. They were publicly mocked and ultimately martyred. And they are running. And they hand the baton off. And they take their seats and say, go for it. They're watching. They're engaged. You know, two teams one God, one faith, one goal, one race. Let's do this, they're saying. Now, is heaven really watching and cheering? Uh, do the, oh, we call them Old Testament saints, and if you're a new believer, the word saints in Christianity, in Protestant Christianity, just means separated to God. It has nothing to do with moral perfection. And so uh, we call the Old Testament saints, Old Testament saints, and then we also have the dead in Christ. The dead in Christ are just believers who died in what we call the church age from Jesus on forward. And so do, do the Old Testament saints and those who have died in Christ, are they watching? I believe, I believe yes, that they know, they're informed, they're engaged, and they're rooting. Uh, where is this idea that once you die, you go into you know, a special room where there's no peeking out, you know, and you just play harps all day long? You know? <laughs> I don't think that's biblical. It doesn't sound like a lot of fun either. Why, why would God have us totally in the know now? We're totally involved. He's revealed totally his whole plan to us. We're watching it unfold here, and then we get to heaven, and he's like, whoop. No peeking. I, I, I don't get that part. I, you know, I'm just thinking out loud here, and you happen to be here. And so God does. The angels do. The devil and his demons know what's going on. And so now when you get there and you're supposed to know as fully as you are known, I think they know. I don't think there's just a little row of seats up there, but I think that they know. And where is heaven anyway? How far do they have to look? I mean, I know it's up, right? But our up is the other side of the earth's down. Where, where exactly is this place? It's in another dimension. Is it right here? Because what? What I'm trying to say. <laughs> You're laughing at me, okay? I don't, I don't appreciate it. What I'm trying to say is I don't think they need binoculars. That's what I'm saying. You know what? I think my mom and dad who died in faith, I believe they are apprised of what's going on with me. They didn't have any idea what was going to happen with me. 
And I believe they know and they care and they're invested and they're like, yeah, they're rooting. And when that thought goes through my mind, it encourages me. I don't try to make contact with them. (laughs) That's a biblical no-no. Neither do they make contact with us. That's also not theologically sound. But them being apprised and knowing and caring and invested in God's work on the earth, I think, I think it's just part of the plan. And so he says, be, be encouraged, be encouraged. So you have the stadium. He's saying you have an audience. Heaven's, heaven's invested here. You know, be, be inspired. You're part of the team. You know, and, and number two, now, a way to practically challenge, uh, channel, I should say, all of that inspiration. Now, a pastoral exhortation uh, to the way you're running your race. And, and, and that would be to throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And so, keeping with the metaphor that we are in this long-distance race, it would make sense and, and notice there are two things to watch out for, encumbrances, if you will, all right? One is everything, that's a big word, that hinders, okay? That's one set. And means this is different than that. And the sin that so easily entangles. And so what is he talking about? There are two things. There are the innocent in, in of itself things that to you, drag you down. They're perfectly permissible, but they bring you down, they distract you, they zap your energy, they dampen your enthusiasm uh, to serve God. And then, of course, there's the easier, yet harder to deal with, the easier group sins. We know what they are, but the first group, that word to... uh, the hindrances word, it just means a mass of dead weight. There's no morality attached to it at all. It can be love of family, idolization of perfectly good things, although you're extreme with it, Um, all kinds of things to distract, and your mind is thinking about a few of them right now. So, 36 years ago, and I know it was 36 years ago because June 3rd is the, the, uh, the anniversary of when my brother and I were in that bar and we both found the Lord in a dramatic way. So 36 years ago, that was just last week, uh, after we had been a, I've been a Christian for a while, I had a friend, uh, let's call him Fritz because that was his name. <laughs> Um, we lived in Santa Cruz. Fritz had been saved about six months. Me too. And we're in the young adults group and we're talking. And he says, man, bro, listen. Oh, the Lord has told me I can't serve anymore. I just got to lay it aside that it's dragging me down. And I said, bro, there's no reason you got to do that. Where in the Bible does it say surfing is a sin? He goes, I know. But you know, this verse that says there are things that, that distract us. And for me, it puts me in touch with all my old friends. They always want to get high. I don't, I don't, I haven't. 
but I don't like it. Just kind of weighs me down. I start thinking about that life again. And bro, you know why I didn't go on the on the Mexico outreach? I didn't have the money. I was spending it on uh, toys and accessories to my surfing. I've I've put more in the last six months into surfboards than I have in the offering. And he said, the Lord just said, I read that verse. And the Lord just said, this is a hindrance for you. Why don't you just lay that aside for now? You see, so I never tell somebody what their hindrance is. If you want my opinion about something, I will I will gladly share my opinion, but it's not our place to tell anybody really what a permissible Christian liberty is valid or not. That's the Holy Spirit's job. You got it? So it's hard enough for us to figure out what, what's, a, what's a weight in our own lives, right? And so the second one is a little bit easier, as I said, to identify because it's the sin. And what does he say? He says, watch out for that stuff because it so easily wraps itself around you, man, before you know it. You're in a conversation. You're just talking. You might even be in church. You're not thinking of doing anything bad. You're just talking. And suddenly, out of nowhere, the conversation just turns a little bit. And now you're talking about somebody's private stuff and then, you're, and then you say something that you know you should not have divulged, and that's called gossiping. And you don't even know it's true, but you kind of get a little bit joy out of knowing that you, you, you know something, and, and that's called slander when it's not true. And now you're gossiping and slander before you even know it. It happens so quick. It just entangles you. You're, one minute, King David is up for a little stroll, on the roof of the palace, and the next minute, he's ruined his life. Lust just... He could have have sidestepped it. He could have the Holy Spirit deal with that thing and master it, but he didn't. Lust and greed and selfishness and pride, they just come so quickly, and they wrap themselves up in half of the time, you know, the Holy Spirit has to go, yoo-hoo, what's happening here? And you're like, whoa, what happened? But thanks be to God for the Holy Spirit, who's always on the job, the Word of God. We have tools to weed whack these, this thing, you know? <laughs> he gives us weed be gone, you know? We just, <laughs> we just pour it on. What did he say to Cain? Cain's all looking downcast, and God knows he's up to no good. And God says to him, the Lord speaks to Cain in Genesis chapter 4, and he says, why so troubled? Cain, do the right thing, and it'll go well with you. But he says, if you don't, sin is crouching at your door of your heart like a wild beast. It wants to master you, but you must master it. But in Cain's case, unfortunately, he neglected the advice of the Lord, and it mastered him and entangled him with bitterness. He was envy. Envy went to jealousy. Jealousy went to anger. Anger went to hate. Hate went to rage. And rage went to kill his brother. Watch out for the sins 
that entangle you. I got a picture of a sad story. I'll just read the article to you, the picture of the boy. Uh, let me just read this to you. The father of 19-year-old man who was drowned at a St. Malo Provincial Park beach is asking for an inquiry into his son's death. Calvin was swimming at the beach on, on August 9th when he became tangled in seaweed and drowned, according to his father. Quote, quote, his feet got entangled in that, and as a result, he couldn't swim properly, said his father. A certain amount of panic sets in, and he ended up drowning. His father went on to say that the 19-year-old son was athletic and a strong swimmer, but he was no match for the seaweed wrapped around his feet. Now, what I want to quote to you as an exhortation is from the lips of his father. Don't let your feet get entangled in that. You fill in the that, because your that isn't my that. My that isn't your that. Do not let it. It's more about bogging you down. It's not just about bogging you down. Sin, when it is obeyed and activated, brings forth death, you see. So spiritually speaking, of course, we're talking about that. So he says, you know what? It doesn't make sense to put on the 110-pound diving suit or get wrapped up in things that you ought not to be if you want to finish this race well. Thank you for that picture. So we've had the stadium, be inspired, heaven's rooting. Uh, the, strat the strategy, be smart, uh, lay aside hindrances and don't get entangled. And now the Savior, be transfixed, really the, the meaning of that word. You can put the text on for me. And for us, be transfixed. Let your gaze be glued on Jesus. In fact, that glue is a part of the meaning there in the Greek. Uh, you know, so ultimately, on the front row of those stadiums, there could be the Apostle Paul and Moses, Elijah. Just think, who, who might be there? Peter, the Apostle. You know what? My parents, your parents, people you love, maybe out in the bleaches, bleachers somewhere. But you know what? There's one face in the crowd that matters. There's an audience of one, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ, who is God the Son, the second person of the Godhead. This is not just a holy man or a prophet. Uh, this is God incarnated through the human womb without a father, fully God and fully man. And so he says, listen, let's start Get your eyes off the crowd, right? Really? And ultimately, it's about your Savior, uh, the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3 says this of Jesus. I mean, I mean, think of whose face you're looking at. He is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3. This is who Jesus is. Jesus by him, all things were created, and for him, and by his word, Jesus' word, everything holds together. That's the face he wants you to lock on and gaze at. What does Colossians 2, verse 9 say? It says, Jesus is 
the fullness of God poured into a human body. So that in John chapter 14, verse 9, he can tell Philip, who says, hey, we want to see God. He says, how long have I been with you? Still, you don't recognize me? Anyone who's seen me has seen God. So when he's telling you, fix your eyes on the face of God, can you only imagine the awe and how transformative that could be? Think about gazing at God. He's the epitome of beauty. I mean, what? we don't even know what he looks like. We know in the flesh he chose to be uh, created ordinary. There was nothing handsome about him, Isaiah says. Oh, but in glory now, he's the epitome of beauty and perfection. He is ultimate goodness. And from his face, the countenance of love. And in him, all the treasuries of knowledge and wisdom. From that face, can you imagine? Looking at the face and talking to the face. That, that, that speaks in the universe, comes into being. That's pretty amazing. He says, that gaze that fills the worshiper with awe. Listen, but there's more than this, a thrill fixing your eyes on this Jesus. It produces in us complete trust and surrender because we realize that all of the, the virtues I just listed that are beaming from that face are, are intended for our good. So I'm looking in the face of, of perfect love. Oh, that perfect love is lavished upon me. And I'm looking at the, uh, the face of who, the one who holds all power. And that power was exerted on my behalf to raise me from the dead. So everything about that gaze is, is, is suited to put you at ease, to cause you to want to yield all to him. In that gaze, he's saying, look and trust. So it's look in awe and be wowed and cause it to humble you and to give you pause in a good way of reverence, but also know that it is transformative. So we look at the person, and then he says, look, uh, look at the purpose. Look at the purpose. The author and perfecter of our own faith. So here's the thought. It's expressed in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. My life verse, I love this verse. Ever since I read it, 36 years, I loved it. Being confident of this one thing, that he who started a good work in you will perfect it, will finish it until the day of Christ Jesus. The day of Christ Jesus is the second coming. So he's saying, look it. You who think, oh no, I don't know if I'm gonna make it. Listen, it wasn't your idea to begin with. <laughs> it wasn't. If you had your way, you'd still be in the world, dead in your sins and trespasses. You'd be on your way to the precipice of, of doom and gloom and eternal condemnation. You would have walked straight over and not even known that the kingdom of God was here if he didn't initiate. It's not that we first loved God, but that he first loved us and sent his son to be an atoning sacrifice. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. His kindness led you to repentance. You didn't wake up one day and think, I'm going to repent. See, what he's trying to get you to see is that you didn't start it. It's not yours to complete. 
per se. It's him who's helping, and you've got to cooperate with him. Takes all the pressure off of me. Says, he came looking. He chose you before the foundation of the world. And the word to choose there means to look at the group and pick. How that works with our free will, and we have free will, and it is not violated. And yet he's choosing. We can't do that math yet, but when we get there, we do that math, and we'll do a lot more, right? We'll understand that kind of thing. He chose you. He's the author. It's his idea. He got you on the straight and narrow, and he's equipped you with everything you need to run your race. And then the perfecter part of it, it's so, it's so awesome. And just saying, listen, he's got you figured out. He created you. He knows your weaknesses. He knows you're that, the, that thing. He knows that. He know, he's got the key to your heart to unlock everything. He knows what you think about. He knows what you need. He, know, he knows what you're missing. He knows your questions, and he's got every answer. So why do you need a gaze on him? Because if you do have any struggles in this race you're running, anything that assists you to get across the line is in him. He has it. So he's like, here I am. Like, you know, if you had an engine problem and, and there's a guy who created that engine, built that engine, designed that engine, manufactured it, I mean, did everything from start to finish, you could probably, with some degree of confidence, go to that person and say, hey, I got a little problem with this engine. Can you help me out? Yeah, he'd probably be able to help you out. He's God. He created you. He knows you. And not only that, this is the crazy part. He's run the race before you look. Check that out. I don't know if you checked it out. Then we're, we're closing down here, but... He, listen, who for the joy set before him, you remember how our race was set before us? So he's telling you, this joy propelled him on his race to endure his race to the cross. He endured the cross. He didn't like it very much, but he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, finished with a prize in the winner's seat, which is called a throne, and he's wearing a victor's crown. So he's saying, just look at his person, look at his purpose, and lastly, look at his passion. Look at the race he ran for you on, on, on your behalf. And so uh, we are looking to him as our role model. I like what Jesus says. Listen, he says to his disciples, I'm not asking you guys to suffer something that, that I myself won't suffer. We are not above him. They crucified him. And the point here is going to be, God is, it hasn't called you to endure the kind of suffering the Lord Jesus Christ suffered on our uh, behalf. And so it was a tough race for him. Upward climb. You know, but he made it to the finish. He endured. How? One word. Joy. This joy sustained him. I like what it says here. He says, it says that he despised the shame. In other words, he hated that part 
of being humiliated and mocked and lied about and his beard plucked out and spat upon and flogged and all the torture of it, stripped, despised the shame. But something was greater than the amount of despising. It was the joy. And there was joy. What was that joy about? He talked about it that night he was betrayed to the disciples. He said, listen, you're grieving right now. John 15 and 16. You're grieving right now, but your grief will be turned to joy. And my joy on the night he's going to the cross. My joy. I want that in you. How can that joy sustain us and be our strength? For the joy of the Lord is our strength. What was it that was giving him so much joy that would be greater than despising the pain and suffering of a Roman cross? Well, the joy was about forgiving our sins, restoring those he loved to life, bringing us out of condemnation to eternal reward with him. Seeing your face and my face in heaven, seated at a king's table, crowned and rewarded, safe from all harm, with eternal life. That joy, he held on to that joy, and that joy propelled him through a Roman cross. So he's saying, look at him. Let him be your supreme inspirer. That that joy will be your joy. When you cross your finish line, who are you going to see? You're going to see the one who laid down his life so that you would miss the wrath of God and eternal condemnation and what we call hell. You're going to look into his face and the joy, as Jesus told his disciples on that night, and nobody's going to touch that. No one will take that joy from you. Let the joy of the Lord be your strength. And he says, listen, don't let it cause you to lose heart and grow weary. Think about what he went through and why he went through it. And you'll say, hey, if my Jesus, like the apostle Peter, I get what he was thinking but he probably said it without thinking, right up there to the heroic end, the love he had for Jesus. They said, well, we're going to crucify you in the same way we crucified your Lord. And he said, I'm unworthy to die the same way the Son of God would die. And they said, we, that, not a problem. We'll turn you upside down. And they crucified him upside down. Because he, when you love the Lord and you look what he did and know who he was, that he created the tree that that lumber was made out of. He created and knit together in the womb of their mothers the soldiers who were crucifying him. This is God Almighty, stripped and beaten. And it says that he, it was, he was beaten so badly that it was hard to recognize him as a human being. What got him through that? Joy. The joy of a bear hug in heaven that, that will never have to end. <laughs> the joy of knowing his loved ones aren't going to be terrorized in eternal darkness. 
He said, that's going to be a joy that's going to get me through that. And it did. And there he was. One last illustration. Then we'll remember the Lord's death on our behalf by taking communion. I'm going to close with this quote. Um, Samuel Rutherford, he lived in the 1600s. He's a Presbyterian pastor. He said this. Can you imagine being such a man of God that they're quoting you? Uh, 400 years later, he said, Christ's cross is such a burden as sails are to ships or wings to a bird. (laughs) I really like that. And it reminds me of the story that I often share with this idea about the hand glider that I met once. Let me close with this. Took the kids to the park in San Francisco. Uh, I think it's called Fort Ross, actually. And uh, we're walking the dog and, and watching the hang gliders in their madness walk up to the cliff and jump off. You know, of course, they have a glider there. <laughs> and uh, this one, one guy and I, they're right there. You can watch them. And I'm standing right there, and I'm kind of amazed. And I'm, I watch them put it together, and I'm like, hey, you better not miss anything. You know, just that's the scary part for me. You know, like, you don't want to find out later, whoops, I should have put that in that way. <laughs> so he's dragging this thing, and he's got beads of sweat. And I say to him, you know, talking about the sport and small talk and all of that. And I, and I say, well, yeah, it looks heavy. He goes, yeah, man, it is heavy. I said, you know what? I'm a Christian, and I got to say, it looks like you're carrying the cross. There's a crossbar, right? And he, and he said, yeah, yeah, I can see that. He goes, yeah, but it is heavy. But he goes, you know what? He says, at first, it feels like I'm carrying it. You think, I, I, I'm carrying it. But then you take a few steps, and you realize it's carrying me. And I was like, sermon illustration. <laughs> Thank you. I've been using it for years. Oh, yeah, just seared into my mind. You know, it's an instrument of death we sing about. Think about it. Why are we singing about a tortured, a, a tortured cross to kill people on? Because through his death and his endurance and joy to save us and bring us together, We have life. And all he's saying is, we all got our crosses. Same joy, same faith can bring you straight through that thing, through your finish line, and crowned, seated on a throne. Those are promises to Christians as well. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your great love. We thank you for your word that helps us and inspires us, encourages us, and corrects us. Now, as we remember your suffering on our behalf, Lord, may your joy rise up in our hearts. May you renew our strength and resolve to run the race that you have marked out before us. In Jesus' name, amen. You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at calvarytherock.org.